Today's scripture reading is from Daniel chapter 6, verses 1 to 18. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials, of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps, because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for thirty days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house, where he had windows in his upper chamber, open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed, and gave thanks before his God, as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king! Did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within thirty days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then, the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him and sleep fled from him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Emelina. 
Well, we're going to look at a lot of, a lot of uh, text today. We're going to look at the whole of chapter 6, of which Emmeline has just sort of brought us into and helped us set the stage for. We all probably know this story. If you've been in the church for any length of time, if you grew up in the church, you probably had enthusiastic uh, Sunday school teachers that were skillful in their use of flannel graph. And they were able to just really make this narrative come alive. There's a lot here. I'm really looking forward to jumping into it with you. But before that, can I invite you to just lean in and pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are there and you're not silent. You've spoken. You've spoken clearly. You've spoken decisively and victoriously in the work of your son on the cross and in his resurrection for our salvation. I pray that we would lean in and receive your word implanted in our hearts and that we would be a people who are eager uh, to pursue a deeper relationship with Jesus and that we would be a people who stand fast, firm, steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labor in Christ is never in vain. Make us a faithful people, even in the face of tribulation and trial, Lord. Make us a faithful people, we ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Well, as citizens of heaven, if you're a Christian this morning, that's what you are. You're a citizen of heaven. And as citizens of heaven, um, that means that sometimes in this world, we face some pushback. We face some opposition. Sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes it's systematic, and then sometimes it's just outright hostility. Christians in the world face difficulty, face hostility. And this shouldn't surprise us at all, because in John 16.33, just before he went to the cross and was crucified for our sin, in John 16.33, Jesus said to his followers, In the world, you will have, not you might have, but he said, in the world, you will have tribulation. So it's an inevitability. Tribulation is inevitable for every follower of Jesus Christ. And that's important for us to know. Jesus always told us things up front. And and this is one of those things. If you're going to follow me, he's saying, you're going to face tribulation. So we need to be forearmed and forewarned, and that's what he's doing there. But the question should come to us this morning. How are we going to face tribulation? Are we prepared to face tribulation? How are we going to make sure that as we seek to follow Jesus in this world, that adversity doesn't get the upper hand on our lives? That's what we're talking about this morning. And I think it's a question we here now need to face um, with, with a particular seriousness because, quite frankly, our culture does not train us well to face difficulty, to face challenges, to face tribulation or suffering of any kind. Our culture doesn't equip us very well to face those things and to push through them. Tim Keller helps explain the reason for this. He writes, Every other culture says that the meaning of life is something beyond this world or this life. But, he says, in secular culture, 
the meaning of life is being free to choose what makes you happy in this life. In that view of things, suffering can have no meaningful part. It is a complete interruption of your life story. In this approach to life, suffering should be avoided at almost any cost or minimized to the greatest degree possible. Now let me say, the Bible presents a very different perspective. The Bible gives us a very different view of suffering. In the Bible, suffering and trial and tribulation, look at I'm not a masochist. I don't think we should seek it out and embrace it and throw ourselves into it. But in the Bible, suffering, well, suffering isn't something we simply, we work at all costs to minimize or avoid. That's not the biblical position, like the secular culture. Rather, in the Bible, suffering is something that God ordains for our good. God ordains our trials. God ordains our troubles for our good. See, through our trials and troubles, He wants to purify. He wants to refine He wants to clarify. He wants to focus our hope in Jesus Christ. The one who has overcome the world through his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. That's why Jesus said, after he said, in this world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So Daniel 6 is is going to show us this morning a great example of faithfulness in the midst of tribulation. What does it look like? That's what Daniel 6 is going to show us. I have three points. The problem, the response, and the hope. So let's jump in and look at the problem. Now, by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6, we've been working our way through from chapter 1. By the time we get here, 60 years have passed, six decades since Daniel and his friends were taken, they were exiled, they were basically kidnapped from Judah, and they were brought over a thousand miles away to Babylon. They're exiles now in Babylon, and 60 years have passed since that happened. And by this time, in chapter 6 of Daniel the great, the mighty kingdom or empire of Babylon is fallen. It's no more. It's off the scene. Now, King Darius and the Persians, which I think is a great name for a band, King Darius, King Darius and the Persians. It just, it works. If you, if you steal that, just give me a little note. Um, Now they're calling the shots. The Persian empire rules, in fact, an even larger uh, region than the Babylonians had. Now, despite all the changes and all the time that's gone on, particularly the geopolitical change, Daniel is still around. Faithful Daniel is still around. He's still at his post. He's still doing his job. And he is in his 80s. I love this guy. Folks, if there's any older people with us, I think we have a lot to learn from Daniel. Look what it says in verse 3. 
Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him and the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. So here's what Daniel didn't do. He didn't take a well-deserved retirement package. You know, he didn't get the golden handshake and off he went. Rather, when we come to chapter 6 and Daniel's in his 80s, his star is still rising. He's still climbing the ladder. See, Daniel is this wise, this trusted, this faithful elder statesman. And Darius recognizes it, and so he wants in. He wants to put this guy in in a place of great authority, and so he plans to promote him. Plans to promote him to pretty much the highest role in government that you can have, except for the king. So everything's going gangbusters. It all looks great, doesn't it? But then we come to verses 4 and 5. Look at what it says in verses 4 and 5. The high officials and the satraps sought, sat, uh, sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom. But they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. So here's the thing. Daniel's faithfulness has earned him favor with King Darius. But as we see here, it's also made him some very powerful and some very dangerous enemies, right? I don't know. Maybe these guys were jealous. But perhaps, perhaps as we see here, perhaps Daniel's incorruptibility was a threat to their corruption. And because of that, they're gunning for him. They're out for Daniel. So, you know, there's nothing new under the sun, is there? (laughs) We all know that politics can be a pretty dirty business, and that's not just in the age of Donald Trump. (laughs) You know, here's a bunch of backroom bureaucrats plotting this power play and and as they kind of talk they they realize they're unable they they don't really they can't dig up any dirt on this guy so some clever crafty person at the table says i know let's use his strength against him let's turn the tables on him and so they they kind of come up with this devious plan and we see them working it out in verses 6 to 8. Look at verses 6 to 8. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction, injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. So here's what's going on here. 
there's a group of Persian government officials who basically have it out for Daniel. They want to destroy this guy. And so in that back room, they plan, they engineer a conflict. They engineer this conflict. And how do they do it? Well, they know something about Daniel that we've also learned about Daniel as we've gone through the book. That if Daniel is ever forced to choose between the law of God and the law of the state, Daniel is going to choose God. They know that. So, they plot and they plan and they connive. They want to use this strength against him. But, there's a problem. The only way that they can use this strength against him is if they manipulate Darius. See, there's nothing new in politics. They plan to manipulate Darius. So that's exactly what they do. They go to the king and they manipulate him. They propose this 30-day injunction. It's a 30-day injunction against anyone making any petitions to any god or man, which means a priest, other than the king. There's this prohibition now. Anybody want to make any petitions, they've got to come to you. King Darius. Darius in this, basically what they're suggesting is Darius becomes the sole mediator between people and their gods. It's a polytheistic culture. And so now everybody's got to come to to King Darius. And all of the elements of political intrigue are here, aren't they? You know, these guys appeal to his pride. They flatter him and they, they make it all about him. That's interesting. These guys exaggerate the numbers about how everyone is agreed. Well, I'm sure Daniel isn't agreed to this plan. Um, But how everyone, without exception, everybody is agreed on this great plan. They're exaggerating the numbers. And then they mix in a little bit of political pragmatism. Because what they're really offering here, what's in it for for Darius, is sort of a... a, um, a shortcut to consolidating his power and his position in the kingdom. He becomes the focal point. He becomes the person that everyone goes to and looks to and relies on. So it's this sort of pragmatic shortcut to consolidate his position and his power in the kingdom. And then finally, to top it all off, let's add a threat. Those who don't play ball, those who won't comply with the king's injunction. I love this. They shall be cast into not a den of lions, but the den of lions. You know, we all know where that is. It's ready to go. And that brings us to verse 9. In verse 9, here's what we read. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. The die is cast. The trap is set. What's going to happen next? That's where we come to our second point, the response. Look at it in verse 10. We've got to respect this guy. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had his windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. 
So Daniel's caught wind of, not, of what's going on. He's not, he's not unaware. He knows what's being plotted against him. But instead of obeying the king's injunction, Daniel does what Daniel has always done. Daniel remains faithful. He continues to pray three times a day with this window open as he looks out. He can't see it from there. It's over a thousand miles away. But as he looks out in the direction of Jerusalem, particularly the temple. Now, I think it's important, and we've seen this again throughout the book, that Daniel is not sort of doing this before the open window in a, in a way of kind of snubbing the king and his injunction. That's not what he's doing here. There's no sort of haughty, defiant attitude that he is praying with, as if that could possibly be done. He is simply praying, as the text says, as he had done previously. It's his routine. It's his spiritual discipline. And this is exactly what the, anim- or what the enemies of Daniel knew he would do. See, when push came to shove, they knew that obedience to God was where Daniel would go. They knew that if the state made a a demand of Daniel that compromised his commitment to God, he was going to choose God. And they were right. I love it. Even into his 80s. You know, you think, I'm 53, and I feel tired a lot. I'm going to blame my kids for that. No, I'm not. I'm not, I'm sorry. They rolled their eyes. Um, But he's in his 80s, and and he feels, you must feel just the frailty. You must feel worn out. You must feel tired. I think it's it's easy to be full of, you know, strength and and vigor when you're in your 20s and you're following Jesus and you're you're all, you know, you're, you're just gunning for a challenge. But here's a guy who's still courageous, who's still faithful in his 80s as he's feeling frail and weak. I love it. Now, at this point, I think we need to ask ourselves some important questions. What would we do? What would we do if we face something? You know, I don't think anyone's going to threaten to throw us to the lions. But what do we do? What will we do when we face challenges that that challenge our commitment to Christ. Whether it comes from the culture or the, 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 the government or some other place. Family. What do we do? What are we going to do? Will we compromise our commitment to Christ and the gospel? Or are we going to remain faithful? Even, even when we're older. There's a great, I've seen this many times in ministry, there is a tendency to use age and weakness as an excuse to just kind of relax a little bit with Jesus. That's not, that's not Daniel's approach. Here's the question. When we face tribulation, and remember what Jesus said, it's inevitable. When we face tribulation... Will our love for Christ be stronger than our love for our comfort 
our security and our safety? That is a question that I think we need to to pose to ourselves with all candor and honesty. Now, if we focus back on the text for a moment, I can imagine somebody wondering to themselves, why Why does Daniel have to uh, pray sort of facing Jerusalem? That, that's a good question. Let me say this. It's, it's not because he's overly nostalgic. You know, remember the good old days. That's not why he's facing Jerusalem as he prays. He prays facing Jerusalem because that's what the Bible tells him to do. In 1 Kings 8, let me just summarize it because it's quite a long passage. In 1 Kings 8, it instructs any Israelites who find themselves in exile in a foreign land that they should pray towards Jerusalem and the temple of the Lord. And that's important for us to realize because Daniel's faithfulness isn't just some sort of vague spirituality. His faithfulness is rooted in, it's rooted in a commitment to the clear teaching of Scripture. Please listen. Please hear this. Because all faithfulness, if we're going to be like Daniel and be faithful through tribulation, even into our old age, our faithfulness needs to be rooted in the clear teaching of Scripture, specifically the good news of Jesus Christ. So, as anticipated, Daniel's enemies spy him out. They see him praying there through the window, and they go in verse 12 to Darius. And here's what they ask. O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any god or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? And then we read, The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be revoked. And then finally, these guys move in for the kill in verse 13. Here's what it says. Then... They, ash- uh, they answered and said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Now at this point, Darius realizes, the penny drops for Darius, and he realizes the unintended consequences of the legislation that he was talked into signing. And just as an aside here, in my opinion, I don't think politicians think enough at all about the unintended consequences of their legislation. But that's an aside. Anyway, he realizes, uh uh-oh, and he's distressed. He, he cares for Daniel. Remember, he wants to put him in the highest place of authority under his, you know, his, his reign. And so da- uh, Darius is distressed. In fact, Darius, the text says, makes some attempts to try and you know, uh, save Daniel from his fate. But these corrupt officials come in and they hold the king's feet to the fire... And they remind him that the law can't be changed. And so the king is caught. He has to act. He has no choice. So we read in verses 16 to 18. 
Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the, lion, into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Now I think as we look at this narrative, the author wants us to pick up on something. He wants us to tune into something. Daniel is as calm as a cucumber. Daniel is, he's cool, he's composed, he's calm. And over against Daniel, we're meant to see Darius, who's, who's beside himself. Darius is distressed, the text says. Now, I don't know for sure, but perhaps there's a lesson for us in this, that our conscience deeply affects our emotional state. Our conscience, your conscience, deeply affects your emotional state. And Daniel is calm. Why? Because he has a good conscience. Darius is distressed because he doesn't. He's been foolish. He's been taken advantage of. He should have known better. One thing, that's speculation. But one thing we can say for sure is that this is important. Daniel does not look to Darius. He doesn't appeal to Darius in order to get him out of his problem, in order to solve his problem. See, like Jesus, Daniel remains silent before the king and his accusers, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. See, I think Daniel's quiet example here speaks loudly to us because we live in a time, we live in an age and in a context where we're all overly tempted to to look for our help, to look for our solutions, to look for our redemption from politicians and policies. And I think that's that's unwise. Because the truth is that most of the time, they can't help. In fact, as we've just seen, sometimes they mean to help, but they end up hurting. Those are the unintended consequences. Even when the leader is sympathetic, as as Darius clearly is toward Daniel, we must never put our hope in the most sympathetic politicians or leaders. And some of the, the, the tone that, that people have today, they're so upset about things that are happening. It's like we were trusting in you to give us what we most desire. And that's why we amp up this political rhetoric and we get very acrimonious and upset and we say things that are unchristian and ungodly. Well, that brings me to our third point, the hope. Look at verses 19 to 23 with me, please. Then, at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. 
As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able, been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me, because I was found blameless before him, and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. So this is the climax that we've all been anticipating. This is the story that we know so well. Now, it's ironic that uh, just as King Darius fasted throughout the night, so did the lions. It's interesting, though, if you look at this whole passage, Daniel's response to the king here, the end of verse 21 and verse 22, it's very brief. It's to the point. These are the only words that Daniel speaks in all of chapter 6, right here. Very to the point. Very matter-of-factly. Look at verse 22 again. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you, O king, I have done no harm. This is very reminiscent of the way that God delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace. There's a real parallel there. But this time God sent his angel to save his faithful servant Daniel from the mouth of the lions. And so from this, what we, what we need to learn is that only the Most High God has the ultimate power over life and death. Only God, the King of Heaven, has the ultimate power over life and death. It is not in the hands of politicians and kings and rulers and diplomats. God alone has that ultimate power and authority. And that's exactly the lesson that Darius himself learned from all of this. I love it as Daniel, even from the lion's den, he sort of addresses Darius with that respectful, honorific address, O king, live forever. But what Darius learned is that no, only the king of heaven lives forever. Look at verses 26 and 27. Darius makes a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So again, in Daniel, the mightiest, most powerful ruler in the known world is, is really forced, compelled to confess and decree 
But it is the king of heaven who is all glory and power and authority and everlasting kingdom. That he alone is the one who can ultimately rescue. Darius couldn't rescue Daniel. He tried in vain. Only the king of glory can save. So what do we learn from all of this? That's what that's one thing we should learn, and that's certainly what Darius learned. But, but what else can we learn? Let me just say up front, and if you were in a Sunday school class many years ago and this was the lesson, I'm sorry to break your heart, but Daniel 6 does not teach us, does not teach us that if you are faithful to God, he will deliver you out of every life-threatening circumstance. Okay? Sorry if I just crushed you know, some lesson that you heard when you were eight. That is not what this passage teaches. In fact, if you think about it, every miraculous deliverance that God has ever worked for anybody, there are many more, hundreds more examples of faithful people who have faced martyrdom and died for their faith. See, Daniel 6 gives us a lot more than an an example of how God might deal with the suffering and persecuted people. But rather, Daniel 6, like the rest of the Bible, like Jesus taught to his disciples on the road to Emmaus, Daniel 6 is ultimately meant to point us to the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. That's where this is going. Tune in next week. We're going to see that very explicitly. But Daniel 6 is meant to ultimately lift us to see that our hope is in the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me explain that. We, we have this judgment in Daniel. Daniel is found blameless and he is saved from certain death at the, you know, in the mouth of these hungry lions. So Daniel is found blameless and he is delivered. He is saved. He is redeemed. But there's a contrasting judgment here, isn't there? We haven't read it yet, but we need to see it because there's also a judgment against the guilty in this passage. Those guys that plotted and schemed and tried to destroy Daniel, they get their comeuppance here. Look at verse 24. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Now, this is usually left out of the children's um, flannel graph version. But here's what I'm suggesting. Is it in the, in the salvation of Daniel and in the judgment and punishment of the guilty? We have a foreshadowing. We have a foreshadowing of ultimately in Daniel's case, the verdict that every follower, every person who hopes in Jesus Christ will hear from the king. You're blameless. But on the other side, we also see a foreshadowing of the judgment, the punishment, the wrath of God against those who are guilty. Now, I get it. It's a nice day outside. It's a Sunday. I know that the theme of God's judgment and wrath is not, 
you know, one of those popular themes. But it's all over the Bible. And, and I don't think we do ourselves any favors by avoiding it. And I don't think we should try and pretend it isn't true. Reflecting on the reality of God's judgment, Trevin Wax says this. It puzzles me that so many people seem to be angry with God for allowing evil and suffering to exist in this world. And yet they are also angry with the idea of God as judge. You can't have it both ways. If you expect God to do something about the evil in this world, then you want God to judge. Even more pointedly, Greg Gilbert writes, Nobody wants a God who declines to deal with evil. They just want a God who declines to deal with their evil. So where does all this leave us? How? This is the question. See, when I read the story of Daniel... I, I get it. I'm supposed to identify with Daniel. He's, he's the person. He's the example I want to follow. I want to, be a, I want to be a Daniel. But I recognize myself in the other guys. I've schemed. I've sought to get what I want for my own gain, for my own purpose, whether it's been jealousy. See, you and I, we belong... We belong in the pit. We belong with the lions. So how do we escape? How do we avoid God's coming judgment? Because I can't be, and neither can you. We are not uber-faithful Daniels. We've got a lot to learn from him. He's a, he's a wonderful example of faithfulness. But here's what I'm saying this morning. We cannot... Avoid the coming judgment of God simply by following his example. Because Daniel isn't just Daniel. Daniel's a type. Daniel and his faithfulness is meant to point us to a later, greater Daniel. His name is Jesus. See, Jesus is Daniel's hope. Jesus is the hope of Israel. How do I know this? Well, do you recall what I said earlier on about how when Daniel prayed, he prayed facing Jerusalem? Do you recall that? But here's the thing. Then, at that point in time, Jerusalem was a, 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 an embarrassing shadow of its former self. And at that point in time, as Daniel prayed toward the temple, do you know what? The temple was burnt and most of it was lying around in ruins on the ground. So, Daniel, Daniel wasn't praying toward Jerusalem because of what it had been. But Daniel prayed in the direction of Jerusalem and the temple because of what God promised it would become. Now, you could spend multiple sermons just on that one thought. But here's what Jerusalem became. Here's what the temple became. You see, through the life, the suffering, the death, 
and the resurrection, Jerusalem became the place where God established our blamelessness and our salvation before His righteous throne forever. That's where the good news that has gone to the ends of the earth to reach to every people and tribe and tongue and nation, that's where it happened. That's where it begun. Began. (laughs) Think of the parallels. It's wonderful, really. There's so much more than I can possibly finish with today. But like Daniel, Jesus was falsely accused by his enemies. Like Daniel, Jesus was brought before a ruler. In Jesus' case, it was Pontius Pilate. In Daniel's case, it's Darius. He was brought before a ruler who tried but failed to deliver him from death. Like Daniel, Jesus was condemned to die and his body was put in a sealed pit so that his fate could not be altered by any human intervention. But, but instead of facing merely the threat of death, Jesus went all the way. Jesus went through death and out the other side. He tasted it to the nth degree for us, for you, for me. And even though, even though Jesus, like Daniel, was blameless, imagine this, Jesus suffered the punishment of the guilty. Why? Because he became sin for you and he became sin for me. He took all of our sin and all of our guilt and all of our shame on himself and bore it to the cross. And then three days later, he rose because God accepted that payment. God was pleased with that punishment. And that's why he can declare you blameless. This morning, you in his sight through Jesus Christ are blameless, righteous, reconciled, adopted. This is where this whole story is going On the night Jesus wept in the garden of Gethsemane and on the cross as Jesus was forsaken by his father, he had no angel with him to give him comfort and protect him against the danger. Jesus was torn apart for you. And think of this last one. When Daniel came out of the den that morning, he came out alone for himself. Daniel's redemption, Daniel's deliverance was Daniel's deliverance. But when Jesus emerged triumphant and resurrected from the tomb, he did not come out just for himself. He came out there for the myriads of myriads of people who are saved by his blood and redeemed forever to reign with him in the kingdom that will have no end. He came out for you. He came out for me. And we came out with him on that day. Not alone. Victorious for us all. Let's pray. Father in heaven.
thank you so much for the glorious good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the later, greater Daniel. We look to him this morning and we praise you that in him and because of him, you would look to us this morning and say, you're blameless, you're righteous, you're saved. Grant us, Lord, this morning to bask in that glorious good news. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver, please visit ChristCityChurch.ca. We invite you to join us in praying that God's kingdom would come in Vancouver as it is in heaven.